Man, it has been good in the house of God, so let's keep it better and let's go to the Word of God and let Him speak into our lives today. Mark chapter 14. God's got a message to speak into our lives for His people for the week ahead. Mark chapter 14. I'll begin reading in verse 43. Mark 14. Beginning in verse 43, this is what the Word of God says. And immediately while Jesus, the He is Jesus, was still speaking... Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, with a crowd, with swords, with clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, came to Jesus there in the garden. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, and he was saying this, The one I will kiss, he's the man. Seize him, lead him away under guard. And when Judas came up to Jesus. He went up to him, and at once he said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. The demonstrated activity we see there in the Garden of Gethsemane, it has all the outward appearances of allegiance, of devotion, of Jesus, my rabbi, you're my teacher. You're speaking leadership and direction into my life. I am for you. I'm devoted to you. We're in this together. And if we're just to consider that physical activity there in that moment, no words, just seeing that take place. Some would consider this man, Judas, respects this man, Jesus, and is devoted to him with full allegiance. A most intimate, vulnerable setting that gives off this appearance of allegiance and devotion. But the dark, tragic reality is deception and betrayal. Something we're familiar with on the movie screens for sure, isn't it? Uh, Two decades ago, one of my favorite, one of my favorite, um, deception and betrayal happened there beneath the arena floor of the Roman Colosseum. Characters involved— Emperor, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Commodus and Maximus. Remember Maximus? He was the formerly known highest ranking and highest trusted general in all the Roman army. But now he's an enslaved gladiator beneath the arena floor of the Colosseum. And Emperor Commodus approaches Maximus. Let's check out the photo. And if we were to watch this scene unfold, just the first 15 seconds, no words, you would see an emperor Commodus lean in, embrace the slave gladiator Maximus with such um, seemingly intimacy and this embrace of vulnerability, and he even kisses him. And by just looking at those appearances, it gives off this demonstrated activity of allegiance of it almost seems as if Commodus— is for Maximus. But then just a split second later, he jabs a knife in Maximus' shoulder blade, leaves it in his body, covers him up with armor, and sends him to the Colosseum arena to his certain death. Appearances of allegiance and devotion only to discover A tragic reality of deception and betrayal. Now let's wreck the worlds of our kids here. 
There's another situation three decades ago. The first movie I saw in the theater with my cousin and, and one of my mom's um, best friends, it happened there off the shores of Denmark, this under-the-sea area known as the Atlantic, I think is how you pronounce it. Daughter of King Triton, Ariel herself. Y'all with me? And my wife's a Disney travel agent. She's going to let me know how I royally botched this later today. But here we are. We've got Ariel. We've got Under the Sea gang. And we've got their newfound friend, Eric. And the lobsters are going. And the fish are going. Sha-la-la-la-la. Let the music play. Do what the music say. Go on and kiss the girl. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Don't be shy. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. And it gives this appearance of allegiance, of devotion. Eric, I'm for you, though I have no voice to say I'm for you. Eric, I'm devoted to you, though I have no voice to articulate it. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, that's not my fault now, okay? Eric does come around, and they have, you know, just a a vulnerable, sincere, um, strong relationship of authenticity. But at this point, and Afterward, leading up to the ending, although it gives this appearance of sincerity and devotion, what does Eric really experience leading up to the end? He experiences deception. He experiences what he would say if you could interview him today. He felt like he was betrayed on a number of levels. Because here is this girl, Ariel, She wanted Eric to say her name. They wanted her to kiss him to kiss the girl because what was the motivation of her heart? She wanted her voice back. Selfish, prima donna, Ariel. Thank you. A few of y'all are okay with that. It's great that we can laugh about these things on the movie screens. But man, how crushing of a weight, how immense the gravity is That these types of deceptions, let's change the picture, please. These types of betrayals, man, too bad they're not limited to the old picture show. We know the crushing weight that comes in when we experience relationships or demonstrate activities that give off the appearance of allegiance, of devotion, of love. I am for you only to have the rug pulled out from under us of deception and betrayal. I think of relationships in this room here. I think of marriages in this room here. I think of some of you who are single ladies in this room here, thinking that there's a man who's promised you some type of activity that should show his affection and allegiance toward you. And perhaps you're here today considering giving him something he should never have in a time he never deserves it based on God's design, thinking based on the outward appearances of allegiance and devotion. You're going to give yourself away only to be burned later and discover they were all lies, they were all betrayals. Oh, how we wish these realities were limited to the movie screen. By way of a kiss, an appearance of allegiance 
That cannot be any further from actuality, and that's exactly what we see in Mark 14, exactly where God and his providence has us this morning to hear his weekly message for his people in pursuit of his glory and the good of those around us. So here we come to the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, literally meaning the pressing where Jesus was physically pressed more than any other time, second only to the cross. But when we think about a garden as well, think, think about what a garden should stand for. There's, it should be a safe place. If you're able to be vulnerable and um, intimate and warm and welcoming and experience life and vitality and truth and grace, it should be in a garden. But instead, we see this demonstration of three people that give off various appearances of allegiance and devotion. But then when we mine down to the reality and we're open and honest with ourselves, neither of these three are quite what the appearances may suggest. So we're going to look at Judas. We're going to look at Peter. And then we're going to look at Jesus. Because if we leave here without looking at Jesus, we are wasting our time. We've got nothing to invest in. So here we go. Judas. We've been given the scene. It's been set. He, he told these guys, I'm going to go identify who it is. The, the man I kiss, he's the one you need to seize. And also, you need to take him out under guard as if Jesus has been combative up to this point. And think about the demonstrated activity that we see here. He approaches Jesus, and he says, Rabbi. He gives off this audible acknowledgement of respect and reverence. Here's my teacher. And then he kisses the man in a very customary, culturally acceptable fashion. But it doesn't stop there, actually. Looking at the original languages, it, it was very customary for, for guys to greet with a holy kiss, something the Baptists never kept on um, with our history. But they did greet each other with a holy kiss. But here, the, the actual description of this kissing was the same phrase in the original language used for the father when his prodigal son returned. He saw his son return, and the father just went so, so um, just immensely affectionate toward his son, kissing him, lavishing a love toward the son in that situation. The same phrase used for kissing Jesus here as Judas did in the garden is the same for that woman who anointed his feet with oil and, and washed his feet and kissed his feet. Just this over, this abundant lavishing of affection toward another. Judas didn't just come and say, yo, rabbi. He likely said, hey, rabbi. Maybe even threw himself down in an act of worship and affection, kissing him, identifying who he was in the darkness of the garden. And as that's playing out, consider the two views that are witnessing this take place. You've got the disciples over here. They see Judas Iscariot return on the scene, right? They've, they've just come from the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper in the upper room. They've gone down the Kidron Valley, up back to the Garden of Gethsemane on the east side of the Temple Mount. But remember, Judas Iscariot, he left early. And now he's returned. He left early by way of just a private conversation between, between him and Jesus. Now he's returned, and 
The disciples see him, rabbi, teacher. And then they see him just display this abundance of affection toward him. I mean, I wonder at that point, maybe, maybe the disciples, I think it's probably pretty likely the disciples are thinking even, hey, it's Judas. He, he's come back, you know. We never really got along with the guy. Always had a few quirks here and there, but awesome. Good to see him. I mean, he, he's doing right by Jesus. Awesome. They're seeing this physical demonstration of devotion and, and affection toward Jesus. What's the mob seeing when Judas identifies Jesus? They're seeing affection. They're seeing devotion as well. But the allegiance they're witnessing by way of what Judas is demonstrating is allegiance to their own cause. Deception and betrayal. So here where Judas leans in, shouts rabbi, kisses our Lord and Savior, he gives off this outward appearance of allegiance. But what Judas knows, what the mob knows, even what Jesus knows, Judas has been ignoring Ephesians 4.29. Judas has been about building up his own kingdom, having conversations of unwholesome talk with these mobs, with only considering how he can advance his own agenda, rather than, even when it didn't feel well with him, putting the agenda and the will of God the Father before his very own. He gave this kiss as an appearance of devotion, ultimately revealing deception and betrayal. Then we go to verses 46 to 48. We see Peter. It says the mob laid hands on Jesus. They seized him. But one of those, notice how John Mark, the, the author of this gospel account, but one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. See, John Mark, he didn't mention the name, but this is Peter. If you look at the Gospel of John, John specifically mentions that it was Peter who drew out this sword and lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest there in the garden. It's interesting to think here because when Mark was written, Peter was still living. So maybe he was concerned that it was too risky putting Peter's name in this account, thinking they'd come after him eventually. But then we do see it in John's account that was written nearly four, uh, four decades later. But look at Peter's demonstration. There is a mob. It's not just a couple guys with Judas Iscariot. There's people representing the high priests, the, the religious leaders, the mob people who've brought their official swords and things like that, as well as just grabbing clubs, torches, whatever they could along the way to go take Jesus. And Peter in this moment, right, think about this. No backstory, no words. Just think about how that looks playing out. Men are coming to take his friend Jesus. So he jumps in, wields this sword, knowing what that means for him in the midst of this mob. There is no way they're going to overtake these men because they are so outnumbered. But he is willing to go and wield his sword at all costs. And he even gets a piece of the guy's ear. Just viewing that appearance of activity... Some would say, see there, Peter's demonstrating devotion to Jesus. 
See, there Peter is a, being a, a person who's supporting. He's showing allegiance to the cause for Christ. That's the appearance, though. That's what perhaps we might feel if we are reading this for the first time. But what we do know, it's not mentioned here in Mark's account, but based on other gospel accounts, what does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter. The outward appearance of allegiance and devotion to Jesus' cause is then openly rebuked by Jesus. And not only that, but then Jesus goes mash style and does some medical procedure and puts this guy's ear back on his side of his head. So what's going on here? How do we make sense of that? We who are familiar with the story, we realize what's going on. And, and Peter demonstrating something that appears Faithful to the cause, but completely opposed. So it comes down to this. Judas and Peter, the same. Devotion is not about what you demonstrate. It's about what motivates your heart. When you talk with me about your devotion to something or someone, don't tell me first how you're going to demonstrate it. Tell me how it motivates your heart. It's not about demonstrations completely, but ultimately in first priority goes to the motivation of your heart. And what's the motivation of Peter's heart? Man, that's impressive. He's willing to Wield that sword at all costs. That's impressive. He's against all odds. He's, he's willing to even go to, to battle in this capacity, knowing it's probably certain death for the sake of Jesus. But whose kingdom is Peter building up then? We know it's not Jesus' kingdom. Peter would suggest, I'm trying to fight for your kingdom. I'm trying to fight for the cause of Christ. But Christ is like, no, I've come as the Lamb of God to die as the Lamb of God first. I must go from you first. I will return with my kingdom. And then, yes, we will lay waste to all the evil and the wickedness of this fallen world. But Peter, right now, it's about my Father's will. But Peter chooses the physical, the temporal, his personal agenda of his kingdom rather than that of God the Father. So we look at Judas, we look at Peter, and we ask, Whose kingdom were they building up? What was motivating their heart? Physical versus spiritual. When we come to this point where what I have written on the title of my, book, uh, my Bible here, the chapter here, is Garden Betrayal Sequel. Now, this isn't the first time some type of monumental betrayal has happened in a garden. We go back to the beginning where God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them everything they could ever need. But then they chose to have conversations with themselves rather than God himself. They chose to have conversations with others, the serpent, rather than God himself. And they went from a place where it says in Genesis 2.25 that they were naked and unashamed to now they realized they were naked and indecent and they were filled with shame. As a direct result 
of their choosing their own kingdom, their own agenda, rather than submitting to a heart that's motivated toward what God desires for their lives. And we come back to Mark 14. And we know these scenarios are not limited to the movie screens because right here in 2021, we know too familiar how this feels in real life, Katy, Texas. Have you ever had a relationship that outside looking in, it had the appearance of devotion, of faithfulness, of authenticity, only discovered that devotion was really masking deception? Only discovered that, that authenticity was masking some type of artificiality. Only discovered that, that faithfulness that appeared to be faithful was only masking something that was phony and fake and filled with lies. Jesus does. Maybe it's in your marriage relationship where you made a covenant one day and... You've given something authentic up for something that's artificial. Maybe it's in the relationship with friends where you had a devotion in one another, but for whatever reason, you gave in to lies and deception. And every one of us, in so many ways, more than we'd ever like to admit, we discover in such untimely scenarios and devastating proportion. They were fake. They were artificial. They were deceptive, and betrayal had happened. Maybe it's a friend who gossiped your reputation away. Maybe a, a company who you've been faithful with for decades lays you off right before retirement. Maybe you had a friend that you've been in partnership with, and that, that business partnership is growing, but as things are growing, your partner's progressively trying to shove you out of the picture. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker taking credit for your work. Happens at home. Happens at work. And I had to write this down because I would be tempted not to share it. It happens in the bride of Christ, God's plan A to take light to the darkness of this world until Jesus returns. Just this last week, I met with our pastor and covenant group on Tuesday for lunch. There's six of us. We call it Pick Six. It's Pick Six. P-I-C. Pastors and Covenant. Guys older than me. I'm the youngest cat in the group. Guys with a more years experience of me, more silver in their hair, though I have blonde coming back. I don't know what the silver is y'all talk about. Some guys like having multiple decades of experience than me. And our lunch this last week, it was great. We had Torchy's Taco, which that's pretty ironic, right? Because what it says on their cups and stuff as pastors meeting. One of these pastors who have at least three decades more experience than me. A pastor who is successful, not just in the eyes of the Lord, but the world as well. He shared something with me I found equally encouraging and depressing. 
said something happened this last spring. And he had a relationship with some friends, he and his wife. And it's one of these relationships that had the appearance of authenticity only to discover it was artificial. It was decades long of a relationship that seemed to have true devotion to one another only to discover it was deception. One of these relationships that had faithfulness here and there and had the appearances of just full-fledged faithfulness only to find out when things got uncomfortable. It was fake. It was phony. So I was encouraged to know it wasn't just me, but depressed too. Like, okay, that just continues, right? And (laughs) decades on. He said the worst part of it all, the the worst heartburn in all this, he said, what's not experienced by new believers doing this to them. But it's those in the category of mature believers. People who have supposedly been following Jesus for decades, supporting him and his wife as pastor and wife for decades, seasoned, older, mature Christians, those in leadership and influential roles in their local expression of the bride, either in official or unofficial capacities. who give off this appearance of allegiance, but then just overnight are gone. Not a word. Or when they do decide to share words, they share those words with everybody but them as friend and pastor. It's rather curious, isn't it, how convincing we can persuade ourselves by, by way of strength of Satan himself that no, there's no use for Matthew 18 here. It's not a big deal. No, I really don't need to go have a conversation. It's not that big of a deal. Half a dozen non-big deals over the course of six months became enough for this pastor to lose a beloved family with no conversation whatsoever. Decades of demonstrations that gave the appearance of allegiance and devotion and faithfulness only to prove at the end deception and betrayal. And this is exactly what God has shown me. This is exactly where God has us today. Asking the question, whose kingdom are you seeking to build up? And that's where we have the model of Jesus. Verses 48 to 52. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Right? He's, he's just saying, I, I've been here calmly. This was unnecessary. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Not the mob, not the leaders who came to seize him. The they is describing his followers. 
They came to seize him by way of ID from Judas Iscariot. And when they did, when Jesus voluntarily gave himself up, Peter was no longer wielding the sword, and they all fled. Jesus was running to the cross. His disciples couldn't run away fast enough. And then you have this really, come on, let's take a deep breath. This is a really interesting set of two verses in 51 and 52. And no, we will not have any type of illustration with this, okay? No, man, I thought hard how I could do something like this with someone. Just to <laughs> And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Some of our littles last night, our biological littles in our home, okay, not the littles in K1 preschool. They were getting out of the shower with their towel wrapped around. They looked so adorable, dripping wet with their hooded towel, walking down the hallway. It's like, hey, come here. I bet you can't get away from dad. And pulling on their towel and just, they try to get away. They rip away, but at the expense of their covering. Imagine that in the garden. Here's a man, Jesus, who has turned water to wine, who has raised a four-day-old dead man from the ground, and he didn't even stink. He's done signs and wonders upon signs and wonders. The grace and truth he taught and physically demonstrated was second to none that the world had ever seen. But when it came to the moments where he voluntarily followed through according to his father's kingdom as planned and as he had prepared them for, they did everything in their own strength, even considering it acceptable to streak out of the garden if it meant they were running the opposite direction of this mob. And here's an interesting aspect, right? We look at Judas' demonstration. It has the appearance of devotion, doesn't it? We look at Peter's demonstration. It has the appearance of devotion. But we ask the question, whose kingdom are they building up? They're building up their own. So it's actually not devoted to God, but it's in opposition. It's deception. It's betrayal. And then we come to Jesus in the center, and we see what he does. And if we didn't know any better, we would look at his physical activity— of running voluntarily into the arms of his captors, and we would think Jesus is being deceptive. Jesus, when his disciples needed him most, he was betraying them and leaving them high and dry and volunteering himself for the cross. But we ask, whose kingdom was he being about to build? What was the motivation of his heart? And then we're reminded of this in the perfect model that he shows there in the garden. There will one day be a kingdom that comes on this earth when Jesus returns. And it will be physical and it will be incorruptible. It will be unstoppable. And he will lay waste in judgment to all who are wicked and all who have never chosen by faith to repent from the direction they're headed and trust in him as Lord and Savior. That day will come. But the moment of grace we're in now in history, what he epitomized there in the garden— 
We are not called to come kill, condemn, and destroy. We're called as followers of Jesus, just as he modeled here, to suffer, to sacrifice, to surrender. And there was Jesus being about the will of the Father and his kingdom. Being devoted to that and nothing else. In the 1700s, there's a guy named Count Z. That's what I call him because we're pals. No, I just can't pronounce his name. Count Z was a, a German leader of a, a pretty large group of Christians. And they were pretty radical if you study um, what they're about. And the believers would come into the congregation and they were pretty radical from the outset of saying, if you're going to be officially connected with us, as a follower of Jesus, you've got to just at least, you know, say you are okay with whatever the Word of God calls you to. You're going to have to base yourself in the Word of God no matter how easy it might seem or how radical and extreme it might seem. Just living out the Word of God no matter what. Came a time, God was blessing, things were growing. And it came to the attention of this congregation that there was a people group that were unreached in the Caribbean. They never heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they became praying. They began praying and burdened for this people group that were unreached with the gospel. And so from Germany, they're looking at how they can invest and take the light of the gospel to these people. And as they got further into the research, something else they discovered. This people group, they were enslaved. There was another people group enslaving this people group who were unreached. And not only that, but the owners of these enslaved people hated any idea of outside people coming in, hated any idea, especially of the gospel. And Count Z's group became discouraged, not realizing at the moment God's called us there. God desires us to go and share the gospel. So one day, one of their church members came up and said, if God has called us there, we ought to be about nothing else than what his will is. And I'm not making this up. Historical record from the 1700s shows these radical followers of Jesus realizing there was no other way to get the hope of the gospel to this unreached people group than to voluntarily enslave themselves to that other people group. This congregation had people give up their lives, their families, their resources to go to the Caribbean in the 1700s, voluntarily become slaves so that although they would be beaten, malnourished and mistreated so that while they were asleep in their bunkhouses, they might have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with those who had never heard it before. That's exactly what Jesus did for us, isn't it? God the Father looked down on broken humanity, Honestly, openly dealing with the reality that there is no way for them to, for us to find reconciliation with him outside of him coming to us in grace. So he sent Jesus. He sent himself, God the Son. Fullness of deity dwells in him. 
to voluntarily enslave himself in the flesh of our humanity. To live a perfect life. Have connections of relationships with others only to be burned time after time. But then still, to be faithful, not to his own feelings or desires, but ultimately be aligned with what the will of God the Father was, and he went to the cross for you and me. And he hanged there as a curse. Once for all, he died, sufficiently fulfilling the payment of our sin, being buried for three days, and he rose from the dead. Not only did he make a way for us, he epitomized the model we are called to as believers in this world today. So if you're here today and you've never heard that or you've never made a profession of faith on that, God of all creation, listen. Don't get ready to gather your bags and leave in the next six minutes. Stay right here. It can wait. There are some of you here today who God loved you so much, he chose to enslave himself that there might be a way of a fulfillment of life that you'll never be able to achieve on your own strength. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song, and you'll have an opportunity to come down this aisle. And Pastor Zach or myself would love to help you understand what those steps look like to follow Jesus. And right next to that is the opportunity that we have as believers in this place by way of prayer and singing one final song to allow the word of God to filtrate our lives and us consider the question, whose kingdom have I been about building? Not how has it looked to others, not how have I perhaps justified it and persuaded myself one way or another, but in my heart of hearts, motivated by the spirit of resurrected Jesus, whose kingdom have I been about building? And should you come to a place of honesty for that question? God is going to use you. God is going to use this bride for his glory and the advancement of the gospel truly like never before.